Welcome back to everyone joining us from America, from Israel, and from around the globe. My name is David Frankel, and as the Executive Director of Ortora Stone North America, it gives me great pleasure to spend time with you, to once again learn Torah with you as part of our OTS Presents Zoom series. Certainly the fall holidays were unlike any we've previously experienced, but I hope and I pray yours were filled with much meaning and simcha. Today marks the 20th shear in our Zoom series, and we will be dedicating today's learning and all of the learning at Ortor Stone this week as a Rafua Shlema for Harav Yaakov Tzvi Ben Liba, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. For returning students and those joining us for the very first time, I want to direct your attention to the Q&A button at the bottom of your computer monitor. If you have any questions during the shear, feel free to send them to us by using the Q&A button. To avoid breaking the flow of the presentation, I will relay your questions to our speaker at the end of his talk. Now, with your permission, it gives me great pleasure to introduce today's Magid Shir. Rabbi Alex Israel is an author, a beloved Tanakh teacher, and an international lecturer. In addition to being an esteemed member of Ortor Stone's Midrash at Lindebaum faculty, Rabbi Israel also teaches at Yeshivat Eretz Hatzvi and the Pardes Institute. Having made Aliyah in 1991 from the UK, Rabbi Israel gained smicha from the Israeli chief rabbinate following several years of study at Yeshivat Har Etzion. Rabbi Israel also holds degrees from the London School of Economics, the Institute of Education in London, and Barlan University. His books, the first book of Kings, subtitled Torn in Two, and the second book of Kings, subtitled In a Whirlwind, have been received with great acclaim. I should also mention that Rabbi Israel has taught in Jewish communities and on campuses on five continents. Today, we welcome Rabbi Israel to our virtual Beit Midrash to deliver his shir titled, After the Apocalypse, Lessons from Noah. Rabbi Israel, B'Kavod. Thank you very much. I'm really delighted to be with this uh, international audience, and I want to thank you all for uh, coming to learn with us. Um, I'm going to thank my Achsanya. Uh, I'm actually recording here from Midrash at Lindemal in Jerusalem. So uh, we'll say thank you to Artara Stone and Midrash at Lindemal, and of course to David Frankel and Yishai Hughes who have organized uh, this shiur. Um, and we are going to do something which is related. We're Wednesday, Od Ma'at Shabbat, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Parsha. And uh, we're facing a little bit of an apocalypse at the moment. I hope it's not really an apocalypse, just a pandemic. Um, but we're going to look back at the story of Noah, and uh, not Noah before the flood, but Noah after the flood. And I'm going to share my screen we're going to dive right into the text because we're going to deal with this very enigmatic episode where um, we're going to deal with this very enigmatic episode where Noah gets drunk. So together with me, uh, you can either follow on the screen or if you've got the source sheets, let's read a little bit. Noach the man of the earth, planted a vineyard. This word, Vayachel Noach, uh, it's a very controversial word. Does it mean, is it from the language of Vayachel Lahatchil, 
to begin, of the language of Chilul, he profaned himself. Noach the Ish Adama, plants a vineyard, would seem to be great, but he drank the wine, he became drunk, and he uncovered himself, he got undressed in his tent. Cham sees his father naked in the tent, drunk, passed out, and he tells his two brothers outside. And Shem and Yefet, they take the cloth, they put them over their shoulders. They took over their shoulders a sort of like a sheet and they walk backwards and then lay the sheet over their father such that they do not see their father's nakedness. Noach wakes up in the morning. And he knew what his younger son had done. And he said, He curses Canaan. Okay? We already read that his, the son is called Cham. And Cham is the father of Canaan. So he actually doesn't curse Cham, but he curses his grandson, Canaan, and says, this is a very, very strange story. Why is Noah getting drunk? Um, and what is this getting naked in the tent? And what is this story? Why is this the final story that we hear about Noah? Um, if you look at the end of this paragraph, Pasuk and Kaftet, verse 29 and uh, 28 and 29. This is literally the last verses we hear about Noach. After the Mabul, he lives 300 years, 350 years. And Noach lived a totality of 950 years. Out of those 350 years after the Mabul, we hear nothing apart from this drunk episode. What is happening here? What is going on? And I'd like to share with you today three different approaches to what is happening, why this is such a, you know, why did Noach react so strongly to Cham, who simply went outside and said to his brothers, hey guys, dad's naked and drunk inside. What was so severe? Why was Noach getting drunk? And what does it mean to curse your son or your grandson? Maybe I'll begin with that and then we'll go into the three approaches. Why does Noach curse, not Cham, but Kana'an. I assume it's some sense of mida, keneged, mida. It is a sense of recompense because, of course, um, as the rabbis say, Eved in Lochayas, an Eved, a slave, has no ability to relate to his relatives. After all, uh, what we see is that Cham had no regard for his father's dignity. He, instead of going to cover up his father, he mocked his father. Maybe he did something else. We'll see in a moment. And how does Noach pay Cham back? He makes Cham's son into a slave. When somebody's a slave, they have to attend to their master. That means when Cham himself is in a vulnerable position, 
When Cham is an old man and he needs somebody to help him get dressed, he needs somebody to help him, I don't know, to push his wheelchair. He needs somebody to feed him and to cook for him. Canaan won't be there for Cham. You, my son, weren't there for me. I'll make sure that your son won't be there for you. Because if Cham's son Canaan is a slave, then he'll be serving somebody else's father. He'll be looking after somebody else's aging father instead of looking after his own father. And therefore, this is a really terrible uh, punishment that Cham gets. He punishes Cham not through Cham, but actually through Cham's son, making Cham's son, Kana'an, into a slave. Let's go to the story of Trine, though. I want to focus on what is motivating Noah here. And I want to relate to um, a, a, a very strange comment of Rashi, which you see coming up on the stream, screen. Rashi makes a couple of interesting comments here, which we're going to relate to. Why did he plant a vineyard? Rashi says, that when Noah went into the ark, he took in with him zmurot, vine branches, and shoots of fig trees. So where does he get this from? And I understand that he planted a vineyard. What happened to the fig tree? We'll come back to it. Vayara tervat aviv. It says that Cham saw his father's nakedness. Did he, did he, I've portrayed it until now, that he saw his father naked and drunk. The Midrash in Sanhedrin, Daf Ayin, says something far more severe. It says, Yeshamrim Yeshamrim Some say that he castrated him, and some say that he sodomized him. I'm going to come back to this, but let me explain where this comes from. It says that. And let's go back to the Psukim. It says, Noah woke up. He saw what his son did to him. It sounds like he did something to him. If you go back a little bit, it says that Shem and Yefet took the garment and they placed it on their shoulders and they walked backwards and they covered their father's nakedness. But it adds, They did not see their father's nakedness. Right? When we say giloi erva, to reveal or ra'a et ervata in the Torah, it usually doesn't just mean to see somebody naked. It means sexual relations. Hence the Midrash comes along with a theory that Ham in some way did something to Noah which was sexual. Now to me, I don't know if that's the pshat or some sort of illusion that we're seeing here, but I want to take all of these questions and these rabbinic statements and what we're going to do is we're going to discuss three approaches to understand Noah and this story here. Approach number one, if you look in source number three here, approach number one, recreating Eden. Let me try and explain. Um, We experienced the flood And the flood destroys all the world as we know it. And if you think about it this way, when we reach the apex of the flood, the tipping point of the flood, the way it's described by the Torah is that the 
water is covering the entire world. The water, the whole world is covered in water. Think about it because that's very reflective of the way that we read the beginning of creation. It says, And likewise here, what do we see at the high point of the flood? The water totally covers the world. And then it says, God puts a ruach, a wind over the earth and the water stops subsiding. One may look at the story as the flood, not just a story of destruction, but maybe I would put it this way. Bereshit chapter one is a story of creation. Bereshit chapter one and chapter two. We then reach the story of the flood and that is not just a destruction, but I'll call it a decreation. And the story of emerging from the flood is a story of recreation. What's my first cue here? Look at the look at the verse here at the beginning of Paratext, beginning of chapter nine, when Noah comes out of the ark. Noah blessed Noah and his sons and said, When was the last time we heard When man was created, emerging out of the ark, it seems like Noah and his sons are recreated again, and therefore God renews the blessing. There is such an affinity between the two stories. It's, it's really quite remarkable. I've put it here and tried to tabulate it just to prove my point. As we see the water subsiding, you'll see that on the left side, chapter eight, as opposed to chapter one, which is the creation chapter. First, we read the idea, as I said before, the, the idea that God caused a spirit or a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided, just like in chapter one, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Then the springs of the deeps are closed and the rain from the heaven is withheld which reminds us of day two, when God separated the water to water up there and water below. The next stage was the mountain peaks appeared, just like on the third day, where it said, let the dry land appear. And then in creation, the fruit trees are created here again. We have the olive leaf, the fruit of the tree. We have seven days and the birds coming back towards evening, just like on the fourth day, the sun rules by day and the night. The birds going back and forth remind us of the fifth day of creation when the birds fly over, fly over the earth. And then, of course, day six is when all flesh, all fowl, animals and creeping things come out, of the uh, of, uh, uh, come out onto the earth. And here, what do we read here in almost like a very bracelet like image where it says, um, It sounds very bracelet like and of course ends off with Pururavu. What I'm trying to say is that the emergence from the ark is of course the story of the, we've got creation, chapter one. The mubble is a decreation and now we have a recreation, a new creation. And maybe this then leads us directly into where do we go after creation? Straight to Gun Aden. And then let's go back to our story. What's the first thing that Noah does? 
he plants a vineyard. And what did he plant? What did he have? What did he plant it out of? I go back to our Rashi. He took with him vine branches and fig trees. We remember the fig leaves from the Garden of Eden. Adam is, uh, Noah is trying to be Adam. Noah is trying to replant the Garden of Eden with its fig trees. And now we're going to suggest that the tree that he decides to plant there are vines. And uh, if you want, let's look at the Perkei de Rabbi Leezer, which you see on your screen. It says, Noach find a, a that should not say Gaban, it should say Gefen. Matzanoach Gefen. Noach found a vine that had been exiled from Eden with its grapes on it. He took its fruits. He ate it and desired it and planted a vine from this vine, vineyard from this vine. And in a single day, the fruit grew and he dragged from it and began, became exposed in the tent. One might say, according to this, it's almost like a sort of a rogue vine which grows in a single day and almost like Jonah-like thing. But Noach is eating from the fruits of the Garden of Eden. Why? What's he trying to do? What's Noach up to? Well, let's remind ourselves that in the Garden of Eden, man has no knowledge. Man doesn't know how to discern between good and evil. And man eats from the tree. And maybe you might say that Noach decides to plant a vineyard specifically because he wants to recreate the Garden of Eden and he wants go, to go back into a stage where there is no knowledge. So why is this story told to us? Maybe this story is told to us because it's here to tell us that we, number one, don't know, don't need to go back to Eden, but I think even more importantly, we mustn't go back to Eden. Let's remind ourselves that the way that the flood happened God said, God sees the Ra, the Etadat Tovara. God destroys the world because the world was turned from Tov to Ra. And in fact, when God decides to recreate the world, he says, I'm not going to destroy the world, even though even though that man from the moment he is created has a side of him that can be evil. In this new world, you shouldn't go back to Gan Eden. It is critical the man have a state, not when he doesn't have knowledge, when he does have the ability to discern between good and evil. Man has to, in order to make this world a better world than the one which was destroyed, has to know the difference between good and evil. And in this regard, what Noah is doing is absolutely inappropriate. So in this example, Noach is living in some sort of fantasy land, and this explains maybe Noach's drunkenness. And his sons do the only thing which they can do, which is to cover him up and say, Noach, we understand you want to be there, but in this world we have to be covered. And by implication, in this world we have to learn to tell the difference between good and evil. That's our approach number one. Approach number two. I call it a refusal to rebuild. Um, and let's try and relate to another aspect of the flood story. Uh, the question, of course, is 
I'm asking is why Noach decides to get drunk. And of course, what I'm going to suggest here is that Noach in some way is turning to the bottle. He is trying to drown his sorrows in wine. But let me try and illustrate this through a, maybe a sort of a, a deeper point. Um, when Noach goes into the Teva, uh, an interesting phrase is used. It says, Noach comes with his son. It doesn't say Noach Noach and his wife and his sons and their wives. It says Noach and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives all go into the Teva. There's a machitza between the men and the women here. And Rashi says this is very deliberate. Rashi says here, Anashim levad v'anashim levad. He lists the men separately from the women in Because in the Teva, the, the, the uh, Noach and his family were not allowed to engage in marital relations. The world was in a state of disarray. It would be inappropriate to engage in um, creating new life when the world is being killed. It's inappropriate to engage in pleasure when the world is in, steeped in pain. However, when the flood is over, God turns around and says, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, you together with your wife, and your sons together with their wives. What does Rashi say here? Okay, Rashi says, Now after the flood, they're allowed to have marital relations. In fact, more than that, what does he say to them, of course? Fill the world. However, and now here, look at verse 18. All the animals come out of the ark, but it says, What does it say? that Noah came out with his sons, his wife and his son's wives. In other words, it doesn't say, Noah was told, come out with you with your wife, your sons with their wives. Noah comes out with his sons, his wives with their sons. Bereshit Rabba says, Kach Noah, Not only did Noah not want to consort with his wife, but Noah didn't even want to come out of the ark. Amar, he said, what do you want me to do? You want me to come out and have lots of children so that they will just be then destroyed? Look what's happening. We had a whole world, a whole populated world. Everybody's dead. I don't know if you can, I don't know if any of us can imagine. Imagine being in this capsule, right? And being, coming out of the ark, and seeing corpses strewn, strewn everywhere. Everywhere you look, there are skeletons, there are dead bodies. Everyone you knew on the face of the earth is gone. How do you, how do you survive from this point on? And that's why God had to promise to Noach that there never would be another marble. This is the Haftarah we read this week. And of course, the rainbow is all about the notion that the, after the rain, the sun will come out tomorrow. 
that there will be light after the darkness, however. Here's the fascinating thing. Noah never has any other children, as far as we know, after the Mabel. Noah does not procreate after the Mabel, and instead, what do we find? Noah simply turns to the bottle and he drowns his sorrows in alcohol. There's a sense, a great sense of despondency and depression in this Noah. And this, I think, is expressed by Chazal. When Chazal are perplexed, why is it that Noah refuses to procreate? When we look at all the people who preceded Noah, there's always a protocol in the Psukim. For example, it talks about other people who preceded Noah in the list of genealogies in Bereshit chapter 5. Sorry, this is not on the source sheet. And it always tells us that, for example, he lived this many years, okay? Um, Lemech lived a certain number of years, he gave birth to Noah, and he lived this number of years after Noah was born, with Noah. What does it say? He lived this number of years, 350 years after the flood, but it misses that phrase, and this is where we get this very bizarre Midrash in Sanhedrin, Daf Ayin. Yeshomrim Serasol, Yeshomrim Ruvao. Some say that he castrated him, and some say that he sodomized him. What are they saying here? According to the one option that he castrated him, this explains why he never has any other children. There is a sense that Cham taps into this negative energy of Noah and says, really, what is the point of any continuation? We don't want to have any more children. There's no point in bringing new generations into the world. And Vyeshomrim Ruvao, and some say that he sodomized him. And here, this idea of homosexual sex here is a sense of uh, sexual relationships, of sexual pleasure that will not produce another generation from it. In other words, what is Noah going to say? I'm happy to enjoy life. I'm happy to enjoy the pleasures of this world. I'm happy to enjoy the pleasures of a sexual union, but none that will produce further progeny. For me, this is the end of the line. In this regard, Noah comes out as a person who's been broken by this process. He is um, a victim of his success a victim of the fact that he managed to survive, but yet the time after the survival is almost harder than the process of survival itself. He cannot move forward. He's caught in place. The first thing he decides to do is to plant a vineyard. Um, in order to get drunk, that's all he wants to do, to turn to the bottle. So this, our first process, is that in both of these, Noah is sort of a little detached from reality. In the first, Noah casts himself as a new Adam. I have to recreate the Garden of Eden. I have to get to a pre-sin state. I have to be in a state of no knowledge. That's why I get drunk. That's why I make myself naked. I'm trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. No clothes, no knowledge. But the answer is, Noah, sober up, wake up. There's work to be done. There's a world to build. We need to discern between good and bad. In the second approach, an even more disturbing approach, Noah has actively refused. He's turned around to God and said, you say, I will not. You say, rebuild this world, I cannot. 
because all I've seen in my life is a beautiful world destroyed and I cannot move forward. And here I take, I'm going to go to my third approach. Um, and I want to try and talk a little bit about uh, Noah and who he is. The Midrash um, contrasts Noah with another individual, with Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, I have to say, even before we get to the Midrash, let's talk a little bit about these two individuals. Moshe and Noah, what do they have in common? A huge amount. Why? What am I referring to? Of course, think who was saved by a teva, both of them. The opening Rashi in our parsha where it says, V'kafato or oto mi bait o mi kofer, that they covered, they insulated the teva with pitch. It says, with Noach, it was insulated inside and out. With Moshe, it was only insulated on the outside. Why? For two reasons. Number one, with Noach, these waters were strong, so it needed to be properly insulated. With the Moshe, it was just a basket in the bulrushes. The waters were very calm. Number two, so that the tzaddik Moshe shouldn't smell the bad smell of the pitch. Apparently, Noach isn't as much as a tzaddik as Moshe. Both of them were saved by a boat. Both of them were saved by a teva. Both of them have this element of 40 days and 40 nights where they were detached from reality. Moshe, of course, on a mountain. And Noach, of course, in the teva. Not only that, but I would say maybe one of the critical things is that no other two individuals that we know of in the Torah were given the following offer. I'm going to wipe everybody out and you are going to be the future. Noach is told, I'm going to wipe everybody else and you are going to build the world. Moshe was given exactly the same offer as the, at the Egel. When at the Egel, Hashem turned around to him, uh, Shemot, Perek Lamed Bet. And what does he say? He says to him, I'm going to make you into a great nation. But what does Moshe do? Moshe prays. And Moshe says, you can't do this. And then we have these amazing words. God said, I won't destroy them. Noach was given the same offer. But what does Noach do? He accepts the offer. And fascinatingly, the same phrase, Vayinachem Hashem, is used with Noach, but in the opposite way. Vayinachem Hashem ki asayit ha'adam ba'aretz. Vayinachem Hashem is God deciding to destroy mankind. In other words, these two people are incredible biblical parallels. So much so that the Arizal, uh, I'm not usually resort to Kabbalistic meanings, but just to show how strong this is, it is the Ari who says that Moshe was a Gilgal of Noach, he was a reincarnation of Noach, which I think in rationalistic sense, we say they're parallel to each other. They seem to tell the same story, except when Noach went wrong, Moshe went right. Let's see this in the form of the Midrash. Exactly a Midrash on our Parsha. When it says that Noah began and planted a vineyard, the way the Midrash reads it is, not that he began, but he profaned himself. He profaned himself by becoming an Ish Adama. He profaned himself an Asechulin. 
he himself became um, chol. He became profane. Amar Rabbi Brechia, Rabbi Brechia said, Chaviv Moshe Minoach. Moshe is more dear than Noach. Moshe started off, um, sorry, Noach started off as an ish tzaddik. Noach ish tzaddik, tamim ayabadoratav. Noach was a righteous man, but at the end of his life, he's called an ish adama. So to go from ish tzaddik to ish adama is a decline. Uh, but Moshe, when he first met the daughters of, uh, of Yisro, he's called an ish mitzri, ish mitzri hatzilanim yadaroim. But if you remember Mazot Abracha, Moshe moves up from Ish Mitzri to Ish Elohim. Noach moves down. Ish Tzadik to Ish Adama. An even more fascinating dialogue is, so Moshe, Noach is on the decline. The question is why? And maybe this source number six, our final Midrash, is going to explain it. This is a Midrash from Mazot Bracha, and it focuses on the Pasuk, Rabot banota suchayel v'at alit al-kunana. Many uh, girls maybe have, have done greatness, but you're the greatest. And it applies it not to girls, but to all the biblical figures. And it says, compares them, who's the at alit al-kunana? Who's the best? Moshe. Compares Moshe to this one, and to Avram, to Noach. Here's the debate between Noach and Moshe. Um, but Moshe al Shinisalei or Temni Akol Keitzad and explains Adam Rishon Davar Acher second line Noach Amar LeMoshe Noach said to Moshe Ani Gadol Mimcha sounds like a, a childhood argument right Noach says I'm better than you Moshe says I'm better than you Noach says to Moshe I'm better than you why Shenitzalti Midor Hamabul I survived the generation of the flood Amalo Moshe Moshe said to him. I am even higher than you. You saved yourself. You did not have the ability to save your generation. I saved myself and my generation when when they were condemned to destruction at the sin of the golden calf. What is compared to? Two boats, two ships. And there were two captains of the ship. One saw the Titanic go down. He saved himself, but he didn't save his boat. But the other one saved himself and his boat. Who are going to praise? Obviously, the one who saved himself and his boat. Noach only saved himself. Moshe saved himself and his generation. That's why Moshe is the best. Let's examine this claim a little bit. Noach says to Moshe, I'm better than you. Why? Because I was saved from the Dora Mabul. I want you to understand what a burning insult this is to Moshe. Noach is saying, my whole generation were evil and I am the only survivor. I was saved. Noach is Sadiq, I'm the Tzadik, they're all the Rishaim. What's the implication for Moshe? Let's think. Moshe also lived in a sinful generation. His entire generation was sinned. When? With the story of the spies. And what were they condemned to? That they didn't go to Eretz Israel. And what about Moshe? Moshe also didn't go to Eretz Israel. 
I'm better than you because I was the tzaddik in my generation and you suffered the same fate as your generation, Moshe. They died in the Midbar and so did you. Moshe says, I'm sorry, you cannot compare. I saved my generation. When I was given the same offer as you, kill everyone and you'll be the sole survivor. You accepted it and I didn't. I insisted that my generation would not be destroyed. I might have even suffered because of my generation. But I saved my generation and I allowed this generation to continue so that another generation could reach their destination to Eretz Israel. I took the whole boat and brought it to the, to the port. I brought it to, I didn't get off the boat. I didn't get into Eretz Israel, but I let the whole of Am Israel survive. In other words, what are we saying? We're saying that Noach, if some way, is the tzaddik, but only him. Moshe's concerns were outward. Moshe was the ultimate leader. And indeed, this is the sense that we get from Noach. And maybe this explains everything else that we have seen until now. Why does Noah want to go back to the Garden of Eden and see himself in this sort of capsule of the Garden of Eden? Why does Noah, according to the other reading, want to get drunk and just, you know, despair of the future? Because Noah is not an outward-looking person. The first generation of Holocaust survivors, the Holocaust survivors in the first generation after the Holocaust, I mean, most of them didn't talk about their experiences. Some, like Noah, were broken. But the ones who really managed to, to survive were the ones who built, built families, built businesses, built Eretz Israel, built communities. And you know what? They didn't dwell on the past. They didn't dwell on their experience of the Shoah. That came out much later, a generation later, in the 80s and the 90s. They were too busy building. Moshe is the person who is the ultimate leader. He looks beyond himself. He says, my job is to save my generation. When he's given the offer to be the future, he could have said, you're right, they sinned in the golden calf, they all deserve to die. That's what Noah said. Noah said, you're right, I'm the only tzaddik. And as far as they're concerned, they can go to, 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 to destruction. Because Noah is in this doubly insulated boat all he sees is himself and his family. And yet, in the end, the weight of all of that crushes in on him. If he's not going to serve anyone else, then he doesn't even manage to serve himself. He ends up depressed because he isn't building anything. He's just looking inwards. But Moshe, Moshe is a person whose whole essence is about giving to others, is about leading others. He looks himself as the captain of the boat. He's the captain of the boat, and he doesn't look to save himself. He looks to save all of his passengers, and he does save his passengers. As a building person, whenever he suffers catastrophe, all he does is move forward. There's always more to build. There's always more to do. And this is where we see Noach in this very, very negative light. Moshe starts off as an Ishmitri, but Ishmitri, he's saving people. Till the end, because of that demeanor, he is, moves up to Ishalokim, whereas Noach, who's this Ish Sadiq B'doratav, the only one in his generation, ends up with an insular view, descending into the depths of drunkenness. So these are our, our approaches to the story, and I hope I sort of fleshed it out.
Before I take any questions, I'd like to um, just relate to one further. We are, after all, here in Artara Stone, we are uh, educators. And I'd like to just say one, one point at the end of the story. Uh, I don't know what you discuss around your Shabbat tables, and I don't know who is at your Shabbat tables. But I frequently will use the story to tell another message, which is a message which is mentioned in many of the Midrashim and mentioned very strongly um, by the Ramban about uh, alcohol culture, about the, the problematic nature of drinking. Not only the fact that drinking is a very insular activity in the sense that I'll blow my head off and, and what will happen to the people around me? I might say stupid things. It certainly is not a productive activity. But I ask, my, I ask my, my kids, and my kids are all teenagers and in their early 20s. And last year when I, when I sat and discussed this with them and I discussed, you know, how much drinking goes on amongst uh, teenagers. What do you think if you see adults drinking too much at a kiddush? Does it influence you? Do you feel there is a, a, an alcohol culture? And I sometimes think that Dafka, when we get to these uh, sort of edgy parashiyot, in the guise of discussing the parsha, we get a chance to discuss some sort of sensitive issues with the people at our table. And if you don't have children at your table, maybe it's something to discuss with the adults at your table, because in, in some communities and some places, in the guise of a kiddush here, and I know things are sort of on low ebb because of our uh, COVID situation, and yet maybe it's a time when there isn't the kiddush club to talk about the kiddush club and to, to really ask ourselves about this notion of being, being productive and being indulgent um, and where um, alcohol sits in our world as Jews. Uh, we are a people who want to build. We are a people who want to be helping our world uh, to grow. And the question that we maybe want to ask ourselves is one of, you know, where does all this sit with us? So I think there's a lot to discuss in this topic as a whole, but that might just be a pointer uh, of how people can take this and discuss it around their Shabbat tables. Ladies and gentlemen, I, <clears throat> I know you joined me in thanking Rabbi Israel for sharing his words of Torah and Kolokovot. To those of you who submitted questions, there are quite a few of you. We'll choose a few. Rabbi, with your permission, can we go through a couple questions now? Uh, for sure. Okay, so here we go. Let me just pull them up on my screen. Okay, so here we go. Do any uh, commentators suggest Noah's drunkenness, perhaps, as a response to something that we'd call akin to PTSD or guilt for surviving or failing to save or convince others to do tshuva? Um, I think we can, you know, I think we can put that into, I, I'm not, maybe some of the more modern commentators do and they use those sorts of phrases. Um, but I do think that that uh, image that we have uh, of, you know, saying, let the world, uh, I mean, one of the, one of the strongest, there's a, there's a famous quote by Benjamin Franklin, um, who talks about the idea that um, after the flood, when, were, when, when Noah couldn't manage at all to see another drop of water, because water had destroyed the entire world, he said, the only thing I want to drink is wine. He wasn't willing to look at another glass of water. The amazing thing is, it didn't start with Benjamin Franklin who did that quote, which uh, the Abarbanel says exactly the same thing. And that might be a type of PTSD. Uh, Abarbanel says, why did he say you drink wine? He says, I can't have another glass of water. 
I think that's post-trauma. Um, so um, I don't know whether the Abarbanel said it quite in full seriousness, because the Abarbanel has about four different approaches. But uh, yes, I do think there is this sense of a guilt for being the one to survive and an ability to procreate and an ability to, to cope. And uh, that's a real thing. It's a, yeah. And it's very easy to understand. Okay, question number two. Question number two. Do any of the commentators give a rationale <clears throat> for why Noah's children entered his tent in the first place? Um, that I'm not sure about. Um, maybe they were aware. Or awesome to of... towards stone. They go right to the heart of the matter. <laughs> the, um, you know, I don't know whether his tent was a closed tent. You know, I don't know whether he was attempting, you know, maybe who knows, the walls of his tent were open. It certainly seems like he was in some way um, exposing himself. Um, and especially if you go with my uh, first interpretation, then in some way he's trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. He'd want to sort of be lolling. Students of mine, it looks like our screen has frozen. Let's give it a moment and see if it unfreezes. And if the rabbi is able to finish his question, <clears throat> we'll give it a moment. We may have reached a technical impasse at Ortorson, which happens every once in a while. But I think we all very much enjoyed the rabbi's presentation. Rabbi, if you can hear us, even though we can't see you anymore, uh, we certainly want to thank you. We had a couple other questions for you, but I think your presentation was certainly, certainly so thorough. It gave us much to think about and, and it, was, it was an absolute pleasure. So thank you. This was just absolutely wonderful. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope we can count on you to join us uh, once again the same time next week when we'll be learning with Rabbanit Abigail Unterberg-Nuriel for her sheer titled Jewish Mindfulness, the messages and the brachot that we make. Until then, let me thank you once again and thank Rabbi Israel once again for all of you joining us and learning with Ortora Stone. On behalf of Ortora Stone, thank you and be well. Bye-bye.